The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, how Putin's armies are changing tack, the growing refugee crisis, and our Moscow correspondent tells us the real effects of global sanctions on the ground. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, I'm bringing you the latest news of Russia's invasion of Ukraine from the Telegraph's newsroom in London and from our journalists reporting from the region. It's day eight, and today I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant foreign editor, Vinnie Shireni, and assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley. So let's start, I think, with updates from the front lines. Can we talk clockwise through the country, starting with Kiev, the capital? Um, Vinisha and Tom, what's the latest there? Hi, David. Well, I think the headline, so to speak, is that we are now entering a, a normal war, if you like. Up to now, it's been uh, war by social media, war by Twitter and all the rest of it. And everyone's getting very excited, waking up each day to see what the news is. But actually, wars take take a lot of time and... Um, it's very rare that there's there are lightning advances. So what we've actually seen over the last 24 hours is is mo- more of the same, quite frankly. Kiev is still under bombardment. There's still the, the column, stalled column of Russian uh, vehicles and armoured vehicles to the north. Uh, moving around to the east, Kharkiv is still under bombardment, as are, as are other cities. And then down to the south, the, um, that's the area. The south is the area of most uh, tactical success for uh, Russian, for the Russian forces. They are slowly squeezing that pocket around Mariupol, um, linking up the, the forces that have come out of Crimea and pushed around to the east with the uh, sort of separate held areas in, in the Donbass. And Mariupol has taken a huge number of uh, strikes in the last 24 hours. It, it's long been known that that, that land corridor down from, from the sort of Russian border uh, proper down through uh, the, the southern area of Ukraine to Crimea has long been an objective for, for Putin. Ever since he took Crimea in 2014, and one of the largest reasons for doing that was to uh, to secure the the warm water port in Sevastopol. So they've they've wanted a, a, a secure resupply corridor. So that's where where a lot of the activity has been happening. The ground also seems to be better down there. So they've 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 made more advances, and there is a um, there is a, an amphibious assault group off the coast of of uh, of Ukraine threatening the southern area there and the city of Odessa. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about that later, about what, what an amphibious assault force is and what it might be used for. Um, but it's largely it's largely a similar picture to yesterday. Um, and we should get used to these, to these pauses when um, not a lot of movement happens and it's a, a lot of uh, artillery, air and other, other sort of uh, long-range fires activity takes place, which, which basically, what do we mean? That, that's essentially... The civilians taking the taking the brunt of the activity. Venetia. Just to add to that, so some of the other developments that we've seen. So we had a large explosion by the railway station in Kiev last night. We've been looking more into that this morning. It doesn't look like that was anything serious. We can't see any evidence of a missile actually having landed. It looks like maybe a water pipe burst. 
Um, in Kharkiv, as Dom said, that's still ongoing shelling, and the same is true of Mariupol. Those cities have both been heavily under siege. But where we have seen quite a lot of movement actually overnight is in Kherson. Um, now, this is the first major city that the Russians are believed to have captured. Um, there has been lots of fighting over the last few days there, but the mayor put out a statement last night saying that Russian troops had stormed the city council building and had asked for certain rules to be brought in. So, for example, maximum two two people can be out in the street at any one time. There's a curfew between 8pm and 6am. Cars can't leave the city unless they're carrying food or medical supplies. He's not calling this a surrender, but of course, a lot of other people are. It's very significant for a lot of the reasons that Don was just talking about. It's part of this effort by the Kremlin to capture the southern Ukrainian coast. Um, Kherson is actually on the other side of Crimea, so it's not part of that land bridge yet, but it is all part of blocking Kiev off from access to the sea and this amphibious assault that we'll be seeing potentially coming in um, the next few days on Odessa is is all part of that. So the Kherson, the Kherson development is, is really significant. It's a city of about 300,000 people, um, so not massive, but still a major city in the south, and it's a major port, um, which is really important to mention as well and, and will allow... Um, will allow Russian troops to cross the Dnieper River, which splits Ukraine in two and gives them a really significant bridgehead. So that is a massive tactical victory. We don't know the exact circumstances under which uh, they've taken that town. We've been speaking to some residents there this morning who say that things are quite calm so far, but that there has been fighting in the last few days. Some are angry that the city has fallen. Some say it's, you know, the reality of war. There aren't many Ukrainian armed forces in the city, so it wasn't possible for them to defend it in the same way as we're seeing in other cities. So we'll be looking at that a lot more closely over the course of today. Can we talk a bit, uh, Dom, you mentioned it, this amphibious assault that's looming off the coast of Odessa. Um, would you like to speak to this? What's it comprised of? What, what might it look like and when can we expect it? Well, what it looks like at the moment is there are a number of uh, Russian vessels, up to about eight that we've uh, we've counted of different classes, different class of landing ships um, off the coast. And these can carry, um, well, it all told, uh, about 100 tanks and 3,000 troops if, if they are loaded um, to the maximum as they, as they could be. Um, now, the thing about an amphibious assault group its its real strength is that firstly you don't know what's inside it it might be empty um but whether it's empty or not it ties up a huge amount of resources from the defenders because the ukrainian army with this potential uh, strike asset just to the just to the south they can't ignore it so as it sort of moves moves around the coast they've got to cover it they've got to sort of anticipate what it might do where it might go and move their forces accordingly so um Let's assume that it has got a huge, a huge assault force in it, um, and therefore the Ukrainian army is, is right to to cover it. Well, the way that, that maritime assets work, and if you don't, if you're not able to interdict them with anti-ship missiles or from the air or what have you, and it looks like Ukraine is not able to do that at the moment, then these things can be here today, and in 12 hours' time, 100 miles away down the coast or further. <clears throat> so they they always hold, and amphibious assault groups hold um, this this permanent. The threat over the land forces. So Ukraine just simply do not know what it what it is, what it comprises of, and and where it might land. So they really can't take their eye off it, and it ties up a huge amount of resource. Now I'm not for one moment. I have no intelligence to suggest that it is that it is empty at all. It'd be it'd be um, surprising if that were the case. Um, but whether it is or it isn't, you, you, the, Ukraine cannot take the risk. 
Now, let's suggest that it, that it is um, uh, laden with, with uh, sort of marine assault forces and tanks, armoured personnel carriers. It's got helicopters, surface wave missiles, so it can look after itself and it can get ashore. Um, it's more likely to go uh, probably in the area of Odessa that would uh, cut off a lot of trade and sort of seal that southern, the, the southern coast of Ukraine. From there, it could either swing around to the east and reinforce the the overnight gain in Kherson, or even push further and try and uh, try and eliminate that final pocket of resistance around Mariupol. Or it could head north because we we've talked about how Kiev has been under siege now for a few days, or the, with the column to the north. So opening up another flank to the south could um, unseat the defenders there. So all these thoughts will be going through Ukrainian military commanders' minds. They just don't know what this force is, what it's actually capable of, where it's going to be in 12 hours' time. And so it absolutely maintains the initiative. It, it, and, and, and less than until it is interdicted itself, and as I say, there's no, element, no evidence of that happening, then it's a very potent force and a real risk that cannot be ignored. Very quickly on that, um, most of the early war has been fought on land, and we've seen the, the struggles of, of, of some of the Russian army and the, the, the issues that they faced. What's the quality of the Russian Navy? What do we, what do we know about the sailors and, and the equipment that they have? Well, we know they, they're good. Uh, it depends how long they've been at sea for. This fleet, this, this, um, uh, this, this amphibious force, we think it's come from afar. We think it's come from assets much wider than, than, the, uh, than the Mediterranean and the Black Sea fleets um, that are normally held there. So, and we think we saw it coming through the channel a few weeks ago. Uh, and then doing that, uh, that 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 weird exercise off the southwest of Ireland that seems to have been um, disrupted and, and broken up by the Irish fishermen delightfully. Um, so it's been around for a little while. So so troops at sea and equipment at sea for any amount of time that does degrade uh, or can can degrade. Um, and so the the state of the the um, how fit they are to fight. It, we don't know, uh, and it, and it's unlikely to have been degraded significantly because they haven't been at sea for, for that long. Um, and they would have, you'd imagine, put a lot of planning into this. So the vehicles will all be secure. They, they shouldn't have been damaged by being at sea for so long. So it's, it, there's no indication and no reason to think that it's anything other than a very potent fighting force. Can we move on to talking a little bit about the weapons um, used in this, in, in this war? Um, in the West, we've heard a lot about uh, the Javelin, the Enlor, and the most recently the, Bay, the Bayraktar TB2 Turkish drone. Um, could you give us a bit of a sense of how, how, how does this kit work and why, why did the Russians not seem to have an answer to it? Yeah, so very quickly, let, let's have a look at a tank. Tanks are uh, very, very big and heavy. Uh, let's, say, let's take a, a rough estimate of about 60 tonnes. That's a sort of, um, that's kind of Western uh, tank. Russian tanks are slightly lighter, but, you know, these, these are big, heavy beasts. Um, and so the, the, the power pack to, to move that thing um, can only do so much. So tanks do not have armour uh, of, of great thickness all over it. Um, it's particularly vulnerable underneath from the belly and at the top and at the back. They've generally, if you, if you were to stand on the, front of a, uh, on the top of a turret looking forwards and, and put your arms out in a 60 degree arc, that's where all the armour is because that's generally where the, um, the anti-tank rounds or any of the missiles are going to come from because you're generally assaulting the enemy. So all the armour's at the front, um, generally. So over the years, anti-tank weapons have had to defeat that. So they've decided, uh, it, was, it was decided sort of throughout the 80s and 90s to try and design things that rather than hitting the tank, would fly over the top and then be able to fire down through the turret. The turret, the um, armour on the top of a turret is only a couple of inches thick. Um, 
So what Russia did uh, to come up with that was they put ERA, what's called ERA, explosive reactive armor, all over their tanks. These are the, the brick-shaped things that you'll see, and they are literally uh, almost like small small bombs that will that will push any incoming round away. Um, to, con- to counter that, anti-tank weapons have dual warheads, so one one warhead will blow up the ERA, and the next warhead will will then penetrate the tank. But essentially, it's always a cat. It's a sort of cat and mouse. Um, effort between tanks and those missiles that are trying to trying to knock them out. So the Enlaw and the Javelin are designed to fly over the top of a of a tank and then blast down through the through the uh, the less armoured bit at the at the top. And uh, what that would do is it's essentially putting a, a high explosive bomb, if you like, r- right on top um, and, pr- and potentially inside the tank. And that would have not only will it devastate. Uh, all the all the stuff inside, the, the people inside, uh, being in an enclosed space. I mean, any any explosion in there is going to be utterly devastating. But it is also likely to ignite the the rounds that you have in there, the the explosive charges to fire the main armament for the tank. And that's why we see a lot of armored vehicles and tanks. Once they're hit, a few seconds later they start smoking, and then will then will erupt because that's all the charges inside the tank going off. So these images we've seen of tank turrets literally blown off and a tank turret will go around 360 degrees i mean there's nothing holding it on if you tip a tank upside down it will it will fall off so if there's enough pressure inside a tank the turret will will get blown out and that's where you see these dramatic images of 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 turrets lying around in the in the road because they've had a they've had a catastrophic um explosion inside the tank so once you get in there with any with any amount of explosive uh, it, it's not going to go well for anyone and anything inside, but it's it's penetrating that armor. It's getting into the armor, into the tank itself. That is the that's the hardest bit. And can we talk very quickly about the, the 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 drones as well that have come into the news in the last few days? Yeah, so Turkish-made TB2 Bayraktar drones. Um, people might be familiar with the uh, sort of um, Reaper drones that uh, that West used in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, predator drones before that so these are big uh, uninhabited air vehicles they fly anywhere between sort of 10 and twenty-five thousand feet they can loiter for uh, up to a day and they carry a whole range of um, payloads which could be cameras to look at look you know spot the enemy and and missiles and or missiles to do to do something about it so there's a crew of three in a in a ground control station up to about 150 kilometers away, there'll be a pilot actually driving the thing. There'll be a a, um, a systems operator who is using the camera and or firing the missiles, and then there'll be a mission controller as well in there, just just in the, with the overarching um, tactical uh, position uh, and and sort of keeping an eye on on everything and and, uh, and taking. Uh, control of more than just that drone, sort of seeing the bigger picture, if you like. So these things are, um, they are, uh, they are not, the TB2s are not controlled by satellites. So it's not as if Russia can interdict the signal going up to a satellite and down to the drone. Um, US and, and, and British uh, strategic drones are controlled by satellite. Um, so these things are, um, like I say, they have a range of about 150Ks, controlled by radio. But Russian um, electronic warfare assets should be able to interdict that radio frequency and so these things can't operate and I'm very surprised that that they've not been able to do that. Um, we've seen a lot of kit, a lot of Russian EW kit that's been uh, destroyed or abandoned so that, that, m- that may, may explain partly why we've not seen uh, not seen more of these things uh, been shot down. We think one has been shot down so far. We don't think Ukraine has many of them. We, we think they, they have possibly a dozen 
Um, so not not many drones at all, but they are very a very potent uh, capability, and they fly so high and they're so small uh, with a small pr- propeller engine that you, you you really can't sort of hear them. Certainly, if you're inside a vehicle, you you will not be able to hear this thing up there that might be looking at you and, and targeting you. Speaking about being inside one of these vehicles and and having to deal with these threats, Dom, you've worked in tanks. On a personal level, how does how does talking about this make you feel? What what would you feel if you knew that these things were flying about or you know a javelin was around the next corner? Well, I mean, it's it's horrific. I, I started off my military career in in tanks um, in the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards, and uh, and yeah, anti tank weapons, um, anti tank mines that would come up through the belly. As I said, that's very very that has less protection than anywhere else. Um, yeah, it, it's it's hugely problematic. I mean, it, it focuses your mind, but it's such an all pervasive threat that you just you can't concentrate on it all all the time. You just have to rely on the fact that your um, your teammates in the in the, in the British Army sense anyway in, in the Royal Artillery have put a, an air defence umbrella over you in which you can operate. Now that's what we've seen absent so far uh, from this campaign. Russia have been moving some of their columns well ahead of their air defence umbrella. And therefore, these these uh, vehicles are getting knocked out. Um, so yes, it, it's pretty horrific to think of. I mean, you you to, if you saw a, an infantier point one of these things at your tank, it would it would you know, very definitely um, seize your imagination for a few seconds. Francis, I can see you want to come in there. Just something that occurs to me listening to to Dom speak about um, uh, the weaponry. Uh, it, it's Whilst there is obviously modern weaponry such as drones being used, I think something that's been very striking about this war is that it is a return, of course, to a traditional style of warfare that for many decades has been largely discarded by the political class. Um, There's been a viral video of Boris Johnson um, commenting um, only fairly recently in a select committee meeting saying that the age of the sort of the tank and the, and the infantrymen on the ground was over, that we were entering a new realm of cyber warfare and, um, and, and, and of sort of tactical insertion. And, and um, it just shows, you know, I think say something that's been very striking watching the footage from this is it does look like the kind of wars that, 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 we, we experienced in the 20th century, particularly the Second World War, the sort of the bombed out buildings, the tanks and everything else. Um, and and as I say, this was something that certainly my generation were told we would never see again. And so it's I think it's part of the reason why this is so shocking is, is the return of, 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 of traditional methods of war. Just jumping in on that, one of the things that's been we've really noticed over the last few days is how Russia is targeting, you know, sort of key infrastructure, the kind of things that make cities livable for civilians. So, for example, targeting blood banks, targeting water pumping stations, targeting a maternity unit. Um, And we've seen Russia deploy these tactics in Syria much more indiscriminately. It is indiscriminate already in Ukraine, but in Syria, you know, we saw in some cities like Aleppo, you know, basically carpet bombing. Um, But we are already seeing that Russia is choosing to take out civilian infrastructure in order to make these cities unlivable and so that they surrender more quickly. Thanks, Venetia. Can we turn quickly just towards casualty rates? Volodymyr Zelensky said today that they've killed, uh, the Ukrainian army has killed 9,000 Russian troops. 
Um, that makes for a, a, a good headline, but is that reliable? And is there a more accurate reading of what it what it really might be? I think it's very hard to get to any kind of accurate casualty numbers at the moment. There's no one independently verifying this stuff. As you say, Zelensky said 9,000. Russia said yesterday just under 500, and that was the first time that they'd actually released casualty numbers, um, which is interesting. Um, we, that's obviously an underestimate. 9,000 is probably an overestimate. So we can say anywhere between those two. What we do know is that Russia is getting more casualties than it expected to get. And we've seen reports of doctors and surgeons being called up to um, come to the front lines. You know, we've seen reports of very demoralized Russian troops uh, surrendering themselves and videos appearing of when they do surrender themselves, you know, calling their mums, crying, just needing something to eat. We've seen photographs of rations that have been expired from 2015. You know, this is not an army that was expecting to meet this sort of resistance, nor was it prepared for the sort of warfare it's now engaged in. Um, so for casualty numbers, it's 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 not clear. Um, and neither on the Ukrainian side, I think we can take anything that comes out of either Moscow or Kiev with a with a pinch of salt. But the casualty numbers are growing. They are definitely significant. Thanks for that. Can we just talk a bit about the refugee crisis? Um, the, the numbers have been going up day by day, um, civilians fleeing major cities, heading towards Poland. Um, what's the latest on that? Phoenicia. Yes, so the UN has said more than a million people have now fled. This is a massive exodus. Most of those are going to Poland. Some of them are also fleeing to other neighbouring countries, so Hungary, Romania, Slovakia. Um, but the vast majority, I think it's over 600,000 now, are going to Poland. And some of these are sort of Ukrainian mothers and children. The men aren't allowed to leave. If you're a fighting age, you now have to stay in Ukraine. Um, so some of those are refugees. Some of them are students who are studying Ukraine and have just been sort of caught unawares. Some countries evacuated their citizens a bit in advance. We obviously saw warnings from the UK, US, France before the invasion started, but other countries didn't. China, for example, is only starting to evacuate its citizens now, perhaps thought that this invasion wouldn't happen or that it wouldn't be as severe as it was. Um, but we are seeing yeah, hundreds of thousands of people go across the borders and Poland is starting to set up refugee camps. Um, and the EU is set to be meeting today to talk about a sort of emergency visa, which will grant people the right to stay in the EU for three years, which is pretty unprecedented. If I could just say as well, I think politically this is a very significant um, crisis uh, in terms of the refugees because uh, there's some discussion taking place in Parliament here and within the European Union as to whether there should be a corridor made um, that enables the evacuation of people from Ukraine that is in some way protected from uh, the Russian advance or from Russian warfare ta um, tactics. Uh, now, it, it, how to protect that is something that, that would be probably a question for the UN. Um, but as, if as some people are positing that it might be uh, a requirement to have um, a no-fly zone over that, and if that could be something that would be negotiated with the Russians, but it seems unlikely. So this is a very, very complicated area. But I would just then I would just add to that um, that the last migration crisis in 2015 had huge geopolitical ramifications on Europe in terms of how countries dealt with each other. I'd argue that it had um, quite a fractious effect long term. Um, it, it certainly, I think, undermined Merkel and her party and 
you know, we, we, we to some extent are seeing the ramifications of Merkel not being in power now because she had a quite a close relationship with Putin. So um, we cannot underestimate the significance of a million people or more leaving a European country. It will have a big, big impact on the political landscape of Europe for months and possibly even years to come. Thanks very much for that, Francis. Um, moving on, I think the one of the big questions is something, Dom, you've, you've written in the paper about today. You've, you've said how, described how Vladimir Putin is reverting back to plan A. Um, heavy bombardments, sieges and high-risk attacks on civilian centres. That's something that Venetia talked about that earlier as well. Can we, can we get into this and just, just try and explain what, what was his original plan? Why did it go wrong? And then what's the logic behind the new strategy? And then I think once we've done that, we could talk a little bit about the history of the strategy. So we're talking about Grozny, Aleppo, Homs and Idlib. Um, but Dom, do you want to take, first of all, tell us what was the initial plan and why did it go wrong? Well, we've all been surprised for the last few days why Russia has not been able to make advances that you would expect from a force the size it is against uh, against Ukraine. Um, we've also been surprised that the, the traditional... Russian sort of modus operandi uh, with the military has not been uh, not been much in evidence, and that that is to use artillery, missile, and, and air, aerial bombardment to a much greater degree first, um, and then send in ground troops afterwards. Uh, in the West, we use uh, fires as they're known, sort of all these artillery, missile, bombardments, what have you. We use fires as much more integrated with the other forces. Um, but Russia uh, is very heavily led by um, these kind of uh, operations, and that's not what we've really seen. And so we were we were wondering why that why it was. Perhaps it was to not alienate the population too much. If it's going to be, uh, if Russia thought they were going to have to uh, impose some sort of control over Ukraine uh, after all this, uh, we thought maybe it's because they don't want to have pictures of great destruction coming and being played back in in Russia if they're supposed to be liberating their their uh, their cousins um from the yoke of of the western nazification then it it doesn't look good if you go and smash the place up so we wondered possibly these things were were playing into it but that seems to have coincided with them not achieving as much as as we think they would have wanted to as quickly as they would have wanted to so just in the last few days there's been a a slight reversal into relying on these on these fires. So Kharkiv and now uh, Mariupol seem to be um, bearing the brunt of this. Um, so that, that seems to be the, the tactical picture. Now, take a step back and related to what we were saying earlier on about how, how the southern area where, where Russia seems to be having more success, partly because the ground is, is better able to move across it, um, but also because there's been this long-held desire from them to have a land corridor down to Crimea. So there is some some consideration being given to uh, the idea that Mariupol apart, perhaps this, this fires-led um, action that we've seen for the last two days or three days or so um, is a demonstration of what could happen if they were not able to meet their, meet their objectives. So um, we've said they're reverting... Michael Clark, the former director of uh, director general of the Royal United Services Institute, said to me, "said to me, um, it, it's not it's not Plan A, it's not work. They're going to Plan B. It's quite the reverse. They they tried a, a mode of warfare that didn't suit them, Plan B, and that didn't work. So they're reverting to Plan A, a heavy fires led uh, uh, activity. So perhaps that is that is what we're seeing. But it it, it in and of itself isn't a strategy. That just might be uh, part of the overall strategy." 
Francis, you wanted to add something? If I could just add to that, I think the, the immediacy of social media creates a short-termist mindset. We sort of expect this war to be over in a few days, as Don was referring to earlier. But we forget that in 1939, Poland held out for over a month against the Nazi onslaught. Um, and that was an utter disaster for, um, for the Polish armed forces. Iraq held out for 26 days in 2003 against the United firepower of both Britain and America. So it's just worth underlining that um, this is going to last a long time, um, almost certainly. And um, and I think it's something that in the West, culturally, we're just not used to. We expect things to be to to to, to be over fairly quickly. And and I think that's that's just not um, going to be the reality um, in in the weeks and months to come. Absolutely. Thank you, Francis. I guess I just have one more question for all three of you. If we can just talk through a little bit. I mean, we've touched on it, but it would be good to sort of go back to it, I think. The logic behind the shelling of civilian infrastructure, what, what are they hoping to achieve? And is there any evidence yet that it's working? Venetia? Well, I think the logic behind it is to make it, as I was saying, to make the cities unlivable, to, to, to bring people's morale down. And once, you know, it's like like the attacks that we saw on the white helmets in Syria, for example, and that was both smearing them online, like trying to discredit them, but also actively targeting them. Um, and it, it was all part of, you know, if you're, if you're injured and there's no one that can come and rescue you, that quite quickly becomes a very serious situation and not one that anyone wants to be in. If you feel like you're injured and your community will be able to rally around you, there's a hospital to go to and people to look after you, that's that's one thing. But for that to not exist becomes another thing entirely. And, you know, shelling things like blood banks, maternity units, water pumping stations, that means no hot water, nowhere where you can deliver your baby safely. That that brings the, the, the quality of living um, down significantly. And while you might be able to sort of withstand being shelled from afar and you're in your home with the lights on and you can have a shower when you need to and you just need to sit it out that's fine but once those things start to be removed quite quickly you will see cities start to perhaps think that it's not worth it and perhaps that's part of what the calculation was in Kazan you know the mayor said we've got people here who just want to live um, people who just want to carry on with their lives as much as possible and this is the deal that I'm willing to strike. Francis Sternley. I think that's absolutely crucial to understanding the, the next leg of the Russian strategy. I think it's to pulverise and then to essentially offer, a, extend their hand and say, if you surrender, um, then we will provide you with food and aid and there'll be minimal reprisals, at least in the short term. And that is, if you look at the history of warfare, is, is a fairly successful strategy that if you make it uh, easy to surrender rather than to continue fighting, then, then that is always the best option. Um, and so I think watch Curzon over the coming days. It'll be very easy for the headlines to move on, but watch what happens in Curzon. If, 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 if the Russians are able to hold on to it and, and without, with a minimal of Ukrainian resistance, I would argue that that is not a good sign for um, some of the styles of resistance warfare that we've spoken about in previous days in comparisons with Stalingrad, etc. It may be that that large parts of the country will actually um, surrender to the Russians relatively peacefully, and it will only be certain cities, perhaps like Kiev, particularly if Zerensky is still there, um, that will fight to the bitter end. Um, we don't know, but I, I think that um, that's an absolutely critical point to to stress. 
I think we should probably wrap up here. What, what, what are your final thoughts? What should we be looking for in the next 24 hours before, before we do this again? What's on the horizon? We've, we've talked about the potential assault on the south coast of Ukraine. Uh, Francis, you said to watch Herzon. Um, is there anything else we should be looking out for? I think the other element to mention in all of this is what's going on in Russia. Um, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of backlash. We're seeing daily protests there. And there is some talk that new rules will be brought in tomorrow. Um, Some people have suggested it could be some version of martial law. We'll have to wait and see on that. But, you know, the reaction internally to what um, Putin and his regime are doing, I think, is is very interesting and certainly one to keep an eye on and one that we'll be covering um, over the coming days. And the situation in Russia is something we're keeping an eye on, too, in this very podcast. The economies descended into turmoil, and Moscow and St. Petersburg are seeing anti-war protests. So, to hear more about the reaction to the conflict in Russia, my colleague Alice Hearing spoke to our Moscow correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, and she started by painting a picture of the feeling in the city. Well, Moscow is completely shell-shocked. I think the overwhelming feeling here is um, one of shock and grief. Um, This is day eight of the war against Ukraine. And um, obviously, people were expecting something to happen. There were expectations that Russia might send a limited number of troops into uh, Donbass, into the Russian-speaking rebel-controlled area of eastern Ukraine. But the invasion that Western media have been talking about for months, that definitely was not on the cards. And uh, it uh, shocked people profoundly. Um, Also, neither the government nor people expected Western sanctions to come in as heavily as they did. Um, Banks are still full of people. Uh, There is no foreign currency in uh, ATMs. It's very hard to withdraw foreign currency if you want to do it over the counter from a bank. Uh, people are snapping up durable goods, um, something expensive, something Western-made. And, I mean, it's important to say that Moscow is a very cosmopolitan city. Over the past 30 years, it has gone through an astounding transformation from a drab Soviet city where, um, you know, people were struggled to find, struggling to find food. You know, there were breadlines in Moscow 30 years ago. And this is an incredibly sophisticated city. And what's happening, it's quite striking because we're seeing it's like an avalanche of Western companies who are refusing to deal with Russia, who are uh, terminating contracts. And um, this city is so connected to the world that what's happening is, is completely surreal and people are still in complete shock. You come into a coffee shop and they tell you, you know, we don't accept cash. I mean, our card machines are not working or Apple Pay is not working, which is a small detail, but it's, it feels like, um, it feels like there has been a um, nuclear explosion and the fallout is here, but we still have to feel the full extent of it. Wow. So you really are feeling the actual effects of the sanctions already. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it comes from, uh, I mean, it, it starts with small things. I mean, relatively small things. Uh, obviously, Ruble lost uh, something like 30-40% of its value already. You you can feel it. There were queues on the underground where people couldn't get in because the terminals wouldn't accept Apple Pay. There's an overwhelming feeling of apprehension because people realize what's happening. Um, also, European airlines, the entire EU, a great number of countries have already cut all um, 
ties with Russia. They have canceled flights. They're not allowing Russian aircraft into their country. So um, as we speak, I think there are four, maybe six international destinations that you can fly to directly from Moscow. And those tickets are um, exorbitant. They cost maybe 10 times as much as um, they usually do. And also people are desperate to leave. And uh, I, I did a story a couple of days ago about Russians leaving. And I thought, you know, it's going to take me a while to find um, people willing to talk for that article. But there was, not, there was no trouble finding anyone. There were lots of people who were leaving, but uh, most of them wouldn't, uh, would like to have their family name withdrawn for security reasons because they have family back in Russia. They, uh, a lot of, all of them have family back in Russia. So they were only um, people who identified by, by their first names. What actual conversations then have you have you had with people, um, not just sort of your friends, but citizens on the street or even at, at the protests? What have people been saying to you, and sort of what mm. stories have they told? Mm. Well, as I've said, people are completely shell shocked, and I think first before we even before we even think about uh, Western sanctions, people were shocked by the very idea that Russia could attack another country and attack a, a, our neighbor, attack a country where that we share um, long-standing cultural, historic language ties with um, the country where pretty much every Russian has uh, relatives or family, or family members. People are completely devastated. And also, a lot of people here have been unhappy about the way, the direction that, that Russia has been taking under Vladimir Putin, especially um, in the past 10 years. Um, but what happened here is a, it's a national cat- catastrophe. There's no other way to describe it. And um, that's why um, even if people are still shocked, the initial reaction is to take your bag and go. Because in the past 10 years, we saw people arrested on trumped-up charges. We saw laws, we saw new draconian laws brought into place uh, against public assembly, against um, this, against that. There was a um, growing intolerance against um, any cooperation with the West. Um, at the level of rhetoric, you know, it's, that, it's just that it, the event was, the, the invasion was so shocking that, um, because all of those years, people like Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, they have been scathing of the West and they have sound, they, they sounded incredibly bellicose, but those words never translated into action. And, and what uh, the Vladimir Putin regime has done is um, it's so stark that obviously everyone thinks about their safety, the safety of their families and their well-being. Um, that's why people are leaving. Have you seen much um, evidence of support for the Kremlin? Well, that's 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 the thing. A state, uh, a state affiliated polling agency has released uh, something that they described in opinion polls, which didn't give any details, which showed something like 68 percent of Russians do support the operation. Again, uh, that poll is quite questionable because we we don't know the details of how it was conducted. But also, it's it's quite stark, you know, compared to the Russian annexation of Crimea in twenty fourteen. There seem to be very few genuine voices supporting that, uh, because, as I've said, compared to Crimea, um, the Kremlin has um, has failed in building a convincing narrative, because the narrative they have built of, uh, as they say, denazifying Ukraine, 
it does very little to explain why you need to bomb uh, kindergartens and central squares. So how is that information then? So the people who don't support the Kremlin and who know Mm. that something is up, how exactly is that information spreading? Are people going sort of behind, you know, through VPN or is it like word of mouth? How are people sort of rallying support against the Kremlin? Yeah, it's a very good point. Um, I mean, on the first day of invasion, Russian authorities uh, started blocking websites or slowing access to websites. And I think uh, that was last Thursday. That was the day when everyone who didn't know what it is learned about VPN. And, you know, they started installing it on their phones, on their laptops. Uh, There was a call for younger people to help their grandparents to install VPN to have access to independent information. Um, all of those independent sources are there, um, even though um, uh, Dorsch's, Russia's only independent news channel, has been threatened uh, um, by authorities that they would need to close over their war coverage. Their editor-in-chief has fled abroad. Um, Echo Moskvy, Russia's probably best-known news radio station that has been broadcast since 1990, was taken off air, and that happened for the first time since a KGB-led coup in uh, 1991, um, at, which is which is quite quite momentous and obviously draws um, uh, comparisons with that KGB coup. Uh, information is out there; social media media is still working, and you know you have access to it as long as you have VPN. But also the opposition to the war, you know, it's it's quite visible. You just need to. Uh, get out of the house and sort of look around you and here and there you're going to see graffitis you're going to see posters or little stickers somewhere on like on a lamppost saying no to war um uh, sometimes it's, it's um, swear words directed at vladimir putin but um it's it's out there it's impossible not to notice yeah that's so so interesting to hear i just want to quickly touch on before we go about the protests. So you were, were there when a lot of the protesting has been happening. Um, what happened? And do you want to talk about how your interactions with, with the police? Yeah, I was uh, I was there on uh, Pushkin Square in central Moscow on uh, l- last Thursday, which was the first day of the invasion. And there was, there was a crowd of uh, protesters who um, came to that square completely unprompt and organized. And, uh, you know, there were quite emotional scenes. There was this woman woman who just stood there on the fringes of the protest and looked visibly um, upset. And I came up to talk to her, um, you know, when she was crying. And as we were speaking, a policeman approached me and sort of tried to push me and this woman away from the square. And, you know, I said that I'm a journalist, that I'm doing my job. Um, and that was that was the moment that they you know grabbed me by my elbows and started uh, leading me to a police van on the other side of the square. I kept saying that I was a journalist and that you know maybe we can stop and I can show them my ID. Uh, this didn't help, but again they they took me to the police van uh, and just we waited for somebody's supervisor who came over and who saw my credentials and, and they let me go. So it was fine. But also it, it just shows that the arrests were complete random. It was, it wasn't just that they were targeting people with posters or people who were chanting slogans. They, they just grabbed random people like me. That must have been really scary. Well, it's, um, that's the thing. If you, if you compare to some protests we've seen in the past years, that's that one, um, or rather the police response to that protest 
was, you know, fairly mild because the police did not use any force against protesters that we have seen in the past. Uh, probably thinking that um, in in those circumstances, it would definitely be too much. Um, I mean, the risks for protesting are very real. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, there were reports that uh some people who were protesting, they had visits from child services and there were inquiries about their, uh, those people being treated as parents. And obviously, you know, if you have children, that's the biggest threat you can have that if you go to a protest, you're, you know, you might get a visit from child services. That's, that can be pretty scary. I understand. And I actually, I know a lot of people who have children and who the only reason why they stop going to protests is because they have kids and they're afraid of uh, losing their kids. Even though that I don't know a single uh, example when it actually happened, but this threats, I think is, is very real and no one wants to try it on themselves. Um, obviously there are dr- draconian fines. There is a law that allows to sort of convert a uh, fine or 10 days of administration administrative arrest into an actual uh, prison sentence if you've been caught at unsanctioned protests three times. So the, the risks are very real. If you'd like to read our Ukraine coverage from our teams in London and on the ground in Ukraine, Russia and Poland, and you don't already subscribe to The Telegraph, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio, where you can get your first month completely free. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm every day on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter. We are, unsurprisingly, at Telegraph to see what we're up to. If you found this show useful, follow Ukraine the latest on your podcast app. And you can email us at podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. If there's something you think we should be covering, or you have a question you'd like us to put to one of our correspondents, do let me know. This episode was produced by Theodora Ludludis and on Twitter, Sophie Coe.